Welcome to the seventh episode of Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. This week, I'm joined by Fred Nastos, co-head of Core Fic Trading. This week's episode is titled Salvation at Last. I'm Ben Reitzis, and welcome to Views from the North. Each episode, I will be joined by members of BMO's FIC Sales and Trading Desk to bring you perspectives on the Canadian rates market and the macro economy. We strive to keep this show as interactive as possible by responding directly to questions submitted by our listeners and clients. We value your feedback, so please don't hesitate to reach out with any topics you'd like to hear about. I can be found on Bloomberg or via email at benjamin.reitzes at bmo.com. That's benjamin.reitzes at bmo.com. Your input is valued and greatly appreciated. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. I'd like to welcome Fred back to the podcast, as he was the first guest I had on. A few months later, things are running a bit smoother now, and I'd expect we'll both sound a bit more comfortable than the first time out. Thanks for coming back, Fred. Hey, Ben. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's kick things off. Next week, another busy week in Canada. We've had a lot of action this week, and, and it, things just don't let up, at least for another another week or so, ahead of the winter holidays. So next week brings the final Bank of Canada policy announcement for 2020. It's been a wild year, to say the least. Uh, no, no, no debating that point. But expectations are pretty subdued for this meeting. Not expecting much out of the bank, but uh, Governor Macklem did throw us a bit of a curveball. His NPR testimony before the House of Commons Finance Committee Last Thursday, he was asked what else the Bank of Canada could do to ease further if needed. Mr. Macklem noted that the bank could do more QE, yield curve control, or they could cut rates further without going negative. And so there's dynamics to each of those. I think we should probably go through those and maybe explain or, or, or just discuss what the limits are of each one or, or which one may be favored. And why don't we start with QE? And something that Macklem noted in the testimony is he talked about a limit to how much, what share of securities the Bank of Canada can buy or central banks in general. And he said, looking around the world, what he's seen is central banks are comfortable buying up to 50 to 70% of the debt. The headline on Bloomberg was 50%, but he said 50 to 70%. So there wasn't really a key number there, hard target there. But I think at this point, the Bank of Canada is at about 35%. So it's clear there's room. Fred, I guess, what are your thoughts on that limit? Like, is that the right way to be looking at things? Or maybe they, we should be looking at the broader debt backdrop. Yeah, Ben. Obviously, his 50 to 70% range comes from looking at um, QE programs around the world and what other central banks have been doing. This comes back to one of those nuances of Canada and how of all our government debt, you know, half of it, roughly half of it is in, under the, the federal name and half of it's under the, roughly half is under the provincials. Like right now, you're right, like so it's... They own about 35% of the federal outstandings, but they only own about, I think, one and a half or 2% of the provincial outstandings. So if you compare them, say, to the Fed, right, the Fed owns something around around something like 18% of all treasuries. So in that sense, the Bank of Canada is a little bit ahead of the Fed. So we saw how the market sort of reacted in the front end with all the buying that the Bank of Canada was doing. There were periods there where it was getting a bit tough to borrow some of those names or some of those lines. And... I'm a bit skeptical that they can actually do a lot more QE unless there's um, unless there's a lot more issuance from the Department of Finance. Fair enough. And we've already seen them cut their QE back to $4 billion per week. And we'll talk about further cuts to that in the future a, a little bit later in this episode. 
With respect to yield curve control, just moving on from QE, I'm not a fan of yield curve control personally. I think it opens up the central bank to having to buy kind of unlimited quantities of specific maturities of, of, of debt. And I'm, I'm not convinced that's a position they want to put themselves in. And then there's the moral hazard part of aspect of things, which I, which you feel free to explain. This comes back to something that you and I have talked about before. I think while in principle, I like the, you know, I like the idea of yield curve control in the sense that it's a sort of market response, right? Where the central bank can basically challenge the market and where the market levels are and put the curve where they think it needs to be. The moral hazard bit is that issuers then have the ability to tap that one part of the curve indiscriminately. And of course, yeah, it raises some serious moral hazard questions. I mean, I guess it comes back to the criticism that Macklin was getting about about them financing the debt. And he denied that they're financing the government, but I mean, it's it's, I mean that that's what QE is. There's no there's no real debating that point. I don't think by by anyone. The argument the central bank will make is that that they are providing stimulus through purchases of government bonds, and that lowers rates for for everybody, given that that's the risk free rate. And you, fair enough, but. It also is funding the government. So the, the, there's no denying that point, I, I don't think, at this point. Maybe it's not monetization for the sake of monetization, but that doesn't change the fact that they are still just printing money to fund the government uh, still at this point. The last potential easing measure that Governor Macklem uh, noted was was another rate cut. And, and this will be what you want to maybe call a, a micro cut, cutting rates, I'd say probably down to 10 basis points, potentially. And maybe that would be in an effort to control the front end a little bit better. If, if you get front end rates backing off a little bit, maybe the bank might get uncomfortable there. Alternatively, again, if, if they're reaching the limits on QE, which they don't think they are, but if they, if they deem that they're close to that point, maybe a rate cut makes a little bit more sense there. That's an interesting argument. You've seen it from the RBA. Uh, the Fed's already closer to zero than the bank is. Uh, and there is room for a rate cut. I mean, Cora is sitting called three to five beeps sub target for a while now. So a cut to 10 would, would set Cora just north of five basis points. As long as it's not negative, I think that's okay. I think they're trying to avoid going negative no matter what. I agree with a lot of that. Like I think a, a rate cut's probably the the easiest and most rational choice if they if they need to provide more stimulus. We have negative rates in other jurisdictions. You know, so whether they cut to 10 or 15 or 12 and a half or something is isn't really the point, I think. But why not go why not go negative, Ben? Well, I think you look at the experience of other countries and you say, well, okay, who's done this? Japan. They're not anywhere close to being able to exit. Europe, also nowhere close to being able to exit from negative rates, I mean. And and if there's no evidence that you can get out of that policy once you're there, and that may also be the case with zero rates. We did get out of it for a little bit for a few years here uh, before before returning. But there's no evidence that you can escape from from negative rates once you go in the, into that policy. From my perspective, I think it's more of an FX policy than it is uh, just like pure central banking to stimulate. I think if your currency gets too strong, then that is an option that you can take. I think that that's the main transmission channel for negative rates, I think. And, and that's the only way that I suspect it's even worth considering. Uh, otherwise, I mean, it's it's hard enough to lift off from zero. But lifting off from negative is so far impossible. I don't think it's the fact that the rates are actually negative that makes it difficult for Japan and Europe to go higher. I think, I think this, I think it just reflects more the the situation that their that their economy is in. But hopefully, though, the bank that won't even need to go there, and and the recovery kind of continues here. What do you think of the data here? It seems like it seems it seems like it's starting to stall a bit. Um, 
No, no doubt there. I mean, we're, we're rolling over. I think it's at the, the first, I mean, in Canada for sure. And, and, and there's no shock there given that there's the lockdowns in Ontario and Quebec and, and, and Manitoba, just generally increasing restrictions through November through December. That's very straightforward. But even in the U.S., and we'll, their data come before ours, so we're not even going to see the Canadian slowdown until next year uh, for the most part. But e- even in the U.S., you could see it initially in the in, in the claims numbers. Just initial claims perking up a little bit suggests that COVID is, all, is, is, is having an impact there on growth generally and on the employment market. And so you're seeing the first little kind of impact in the data from the second wave of, or whatever wave you want to call it. Of COVID and, and on the Canada side, it's I mean, there's not much data, but you auto sales were down pretty sharply in uh, in November. I'd expect another chunky decrease in, in December before we bounce back early next year. So you you've seen it peak. The question is, does it matter? And Fred, as a trader, like, do you care that the data are weak now when you know there's a vaccine coming right around the corner? The data matters insofar as how much sort of damage it does to personal balance sheets, right? While there's a lot of people who, who've been working right through this pandemic, there's a lot of damage being done to many households. And the longer the lockdowns exist, the more damage it does to various sectors. And we saw some decent fiscal support from from the feds uh, in, the, in the budget update, but that only replaces some of the incomes that are out there. Fair enough. I think that they have backed off a little bit on the income support, but they're, they're, they're still pretty generous, especially in Canada. In the US, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll see how things play out there. They have kind of pulled back on their on their uh, unemployment insurance support and, and the top ups there, but uh, they they could get renewed. I mean, the counterpoint to, to your to what you just said is that like, and I agree that there is damage being done here, and some of that damage will be longer term and on, of the more permanent variety. And I'll, I'll get to that what that might mean in, in a while. But if you look at household balances, you look at the savings rate in the economy over the past six, two quarters, call it three quarters or so since the start of the pandemic. And savings rates have exploded higher. And part of that, so part of that is is the fact that incomes have been well supported by the government. But the other part is, I mean, you can't spend money on certain things. You can't, well, right now, I mean, right now you can't get a haircut, at least not in Toronto. Uh, and you, you can't do a lot of services and you can't, you can't buy a lot of services. And I mean, that's what people want to spend their money on. And because they can't, it just goes into savings. And maybe they buy more goods than they have. I think that, that part's pretty clear, but there's a limit there. Obviously, like how much stuff can you possibly buy? Famous last words. But I mean, it's it's effectively forcing people to save more money. And, and in Canada alone, uh, over the past three quarters or so, you have $150 billion in savings and excess savings. And so that's 7.5% of GDP just waiting on the sidelines. Where does that get spent, right? To to um, I think I think on your last podcast you had JM on who who you know made the point about you know you can only take so many vacations a year. Where does all the excess savings end up going? Uh, uh, you know because because I'm going to miss two haircuts here uh, doesn't mean I'm going to go get two more when the lockdowns are removed. Definitely not. But you can go more restaurants. Uh, you can get an extra personal trainer session. There's a lot of other things you can do with your time. Uh, and spend it in different ways that increase the the amount of money you're spending. I mean, I can buy my kids more hockey lessons. Uh, as many as as much as you can say, well, I can only get so many haircuts. There's a lot of other things you can do. And from a vacation perspective, well, I mean, you could just take a fancier vacation. <laughs> that would work too. There's always upside on those. Uh, so so it seems. Yeah. On the service side, though, that that takes you to um, like it takes you to a situation where you you know this is obvious at first, but you know you have you have winners and losers, right? And you just have a more bimodal 
distribution of of wealth afterwards, right? Like to get out of that, it takes time. Well, that's why we have a high tax rate in Canada, isn't it? That that that, that definitely <laughs> helps some people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let's 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 get back to the bank just for just to finish that that thought off here. Because we have a vaccine coming. I mean, it was approved in the UK today. Today is is, is Wednesday, December second, uh, for the record. Uh, and the U.S. looks like they're going to have one. I mean, it'll be approved within within days. New York said they'll have it mid month or so, something like that. A few hundred thousand doses. Uh, and United Airlines said last week they were shipping already shipping vaccines around the country. This is underway in some countries, not in Canada, unfortunately, but uh, in, in in some countries. But in the October monetary policy report, the Bank of Canada said. Their forecast is contingent on a vaccine coming in the second half of 2022. Well, guess what, folks? It will be well before then. My view will have something probably within three months for frontline responders, at least the healthcare workers and such, and, and maybe high vulnerable individuals. And the broader public will probably have it by the middle of the year in Canada, at least. I think it will be probably a bit earlier in the U.S. Uh, but that is well in advance. You're a full year ahead of time, if not more, from the bank's forecast. That will change things for them. Can they raise rates before the 2023 timeline that they provided? Are they going to start to reevaluate things? Well, to quote them, they'll be they'll be data dependent. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, of course, best case scenario is the vaccine's highly effective, and we're booming by Q3 or Q4 2021, right? And yeah, and all that money that's being saved that you were talking about is is being spent. And I don't see why at that point, I mean, you know, it'll come down to, it'll come down to things like, you know, where is the output gap, right? And, and how much, how much more stimulus does the economy need to get us to, you know, to reasonably high employment? But sure, my, my personal view is that we could maybe see hikes by Q, Q2 or Q3 of 2022. Okay. I think that's, I mean, that's kind of the point. Is, and, and, and what we have priced right now is the first hike looks to be in place by pretty much September 2022. But I mean, that's the swap market and there's some structural pay flow in that market that keeps those rates somewhat elevated. If we look at the cash market, uh, the first rate hike looks like, yeah, late 2022. Also, maybe early 2023 instead. Uh, things are, are a little, little, little bit different there. But I mean, that's clearly within the realm of possibility. And I don't doubt it. I think, I think you talked about the output gap and where that is. I mean, geez, talk about something that is just totally and completely impossible to measure. If you consider how much their estimate of potential growth could change in any given year, I mean, it's moved by percentage points or half a percent or whatever. I mean, those are big numbers. And so I think using the output gap in this case is going to be awfully tough and it's going to be more of an exercise in uh, where employment is compared to where we were, or at least the unemployment rate compared to where we were and maybe the the employment rate uh, and and, in, and inflation, where, where inflation is tracking. And how sticky it is and, and how quickly it, it perks right back up. Like what we've seen is core inflation stay pretty stubborn, like not far from 2%, despite the fact that headlines been been pretty low. And going back to that, that money issue, so like the savings on the household side and add in fiscal stimulus as well. And and this, if, if, if you do get this kind of boom in the second half of 2021, in the meantime, so what you're getting right now is, is a lot of small businesses getting getting shut down effectively, going bankrupt because of lockdowns in places like Toronto and, and restaurants being shut in, in, in parts of Quebec and Manitoba being locked down generally, uh, Alberta being having more restrictions. So, I mean, broader restrictions. That means 
waves potentially of bankruptcies, further bankruptcies. And so those businesses are going to be gone. And so when things reopen, there just won't be the same capacity to absorb the demand that's there. And so if you get that strength, that, that really that surge in demand, maybe that we might get in the second half of next year, there's the potential for an inflation impulse that you wouldn't otherwise get kind of almost in any other situation. I guess the question there is how, how permanent is that? Well, it's not. I mean, it would be a level shift. And, and, and those kind of those small businesses, restaurants and such, would have pricing power that they've really never had before. Like, there would actually be kind of excess demand there. And so they, they could raise prices, but that'll bring more restaurants to open pretty quickly. And I would say within like three to six months, you'd, you'd see things are already start to ramp back up. But in the meantime, I mean, it is an upside, at least short-term upside to inflation, even if it's temporary. You don't know that until after the fact. Yeah. And sometimes these things, I guess, percolate through, right? Like presumably there'll be a, a large demand to, to travel in the second half of next year, right? And sure, even though the, you know, the, even though the hairdresser who isn't really cutting any more hair, they're going to feel the need to raise their prices just to be able to afford other things that are going on, right? So, or just be able to afford other, other services that they want to consume. Exactly. There's potential there. I, I'm not, I'm not sold on it entirely, especially given the past whatever, 15, 20 years of, of kind of no inflation. But uh, I mean, this situation is so very unique that it is possible that uh, things turn out a little bit differently than what most everybody expects. It's definitely going to go against the tide of like the deflationary pressures that we've had for the past decade, say, right? But I, I suspect it's just a, it'll just be a temporary move and, and we'll be back onto that, onto that same story of, of excess capital and, um, Demographically, demographically driven disinflation. Yes, that, that's the term I was looking for. Demographically driven disinflation. <laughs> I agree. It's hard to get away from that. Like uh, the big demographics for me are the bigger picture always, and and they all they continue to point in one direction, and that's that is not that is not toward more inflation or more growth, uh, for that matter. One last thing with the bank, I guess, is that if let's say the data does turns positive again, reasonably early, there's no need for any more stimulus. What happens to the bank's balance sheet and like what kind of what kind of trades are should people be looking at around that? That's a great question. You was so you mentioned earlier that if in order for the bank to increase QE from here, they'd probably need to see more issuance. More issuance would come with a downturn. So if the economy were weakened, you'd see more issuance because the federal government would be spending more money. Very straightforward. Uh, that I, I would agree that's pretty much the only way they can increase their QE from at, at this point. But it looks as though things are going the other way. So uh, the budget out on Monday or the budget update out on Monday uh, showed a, a bigger deficit for this year. But for next year, I would say more or less in line, kind of a $150 billion-ish deficit. And that will bring issuance down at least $100 billion. So this year is, uh, will be around $374 billion. Uh, next year will be down, looks like at least 100 from there. Uh, and if that's the case, that means more tapering from the Bank of Canada. They'll have to cut their buying to... At some point, kind of by the middle of next year, I'd say, cut it down to about $3 billion per week, or, or they could even lower it further than that, depending on how the issuance outlook uh, actually plays out. If it falls by more than 100, then they could cut it even further than that. So the, it looks as though, unlike the Fed, the bank's balance sheet will be relatively steady, at least kind of through the early part of next year. Uh, a lot of the repo operations will will mature, and then that will shrink their size of their balance sheet, offsetting uh, and the QE will offset that to some extent, so keep things pretty steady. The QE timeline for the bank is is it doesn't look the same as it does for uh, and most of the other central banks. It seems as though the clock is ticking on there, four billion to cut that to three or maybe even two. How to trade that? I guess is a great question. I, I mean, it depends on how much stimulus impact they want to have, and if they want to keep keep having the same kind of 
impact on an on a DVO one basis, that would mean they'd have to move further at the curve, and that that could further support the long end. I, I'm not sold on that, but uh, it's certainly possible. You think we should expect the Bank of Canada's balance sheet um, to sort of uh, to get smaller much quicker than the Fed's? Yeah, I mean the the bank's not not rolling over maturities, and so unless that changes, and and it, and it very well could next year, but that that's kind of tough to do in Canada the way our market's structured. It's not it's not like they can go out and buy ten billion if the bonds they own the next day. I mean that will have a market impact, and then not a small one, uh, and, and and so it's not as straightforward. And and if anything, what they might do is just increase their take at, at the auctions. Uh, if they wanted to look at it that way, but you can argue that that the, their their auction buying now is counts as, as, as rolling things over to some extent, and if even more so, arguably. So it it's not perfectly clear, but it seems as though the bank has a much clearer path toward exiting all of these things than the Fed does. So I, that would include raising rates at the end of the day. I mean, I've I've, I've long argued that because the Bank of Canada impacts really only the Canadian market, and even then only the Canadian fixed income market, for the most part, I mean, they're free to raise rates in a way that the, the Fed is not. The Fed impacts everybody globally, all asset markets. It is the global risk-free rate. If they're too aggressive, you will crush global markets of every asset class. Uh, for the Bank of Canada, they're free to do what they want. Their only risk is the Canadian dollar getting out of hand. Yeah. So if both the Fed and the Bank of Canada are kind of at their lower bound, and the Bank of Canada's balance sheet is getting smaller... How supportive should that be of the currency? Well, you will get some strength in the Canadian dollar. I mean, that that kind of might be what you're seeing now. The, the, the U.S. dollar broadly weakening. Uh, generally, I think it's more of a risk thing than anything else. But like Canada's done okay here. And, and we could continue to strengthen despite the fundamental issues in Canada, of which there are plenty. Uh, save those for another time. But I mean, there's room for the Canadian dollar to keep strengthening. It's up to the Bank of Canada at that point to be like, oh, no, that's enough. Then it's a question of how how the bank would want to deal with that and how uncomfortable they are trying to to, to stem any gains in the currency. The chart definitely looks strong here. I'm just watching the just watching the Canadian dollars sort of go through those um, those twenty the late 2019 levels. We're through where we where we started the year. Like we're we're at the strength, strongest point of the year, or or close to it, if not there. And and it's amazing if you think about how weak the Canadian dollar was at the height of the crisis and how far we've come back. It's just like, wow, that, that's, I guess that's 2020. <laughs> that is 2020. We're pretty much wrapped up with the bank there. And that touches a bit on, on the budget impact. Uh, I, I'm not going to do too much on the budget at this point, but it's worth noting that there's plenty of more stimulus coming in Canada. And to go along with the, with the household savings, fiscal stimulus is going to be coming in the tens of billions. And so you're going to get continued support, especially in Canada. The U.S., I guess we'll see, but that again feeds into that second half strength theme that we've been uh, talking about today. Um, before we get on to looking at into 2021, December one and two are our big days in Canada. Uh, big index extensions, big flow days. What takeaway do we? What, what takeaway is there from from those two days? And and what's next this month that we should be looking forward to? Maybe it's worth just to provide some background to. People who aren't that familiar with this, with what you're with what you're referring to, there with DC one and December two. So those are those are large coupon flow days in Canada. A large portion of the Canadian market pays coupons on December one, December two, and so typically those get reinvested back into the into the fixed income market. The desk has definitely seen its uh, you know a, a decent uh, a decent amount of buying over the past twenty four hours or so. The market performed sort of as you might expect. Um, 
the 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 long end flattened uh, quite a bit going into yesterday, um, even versus the U.S. Well, Canada is a couple of basis points richer yesterday, and uh, and has given back a little bit of that today. But the you know the coupon flows aren't really over yet though. Right in the middle of the month, there's a CMB coupon that gets paid out and a BC coupon on the 18th. So typically, this this outperformance of Canada continues for a couple of weeks, and then you run into the holidays, of course. And so you 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 sometimes have to wait until January or so for it to uh, for it to revert a little bit. But uh, yeah, that takes us into 2021, I guess. So yeah, that definitely takes us in 2021. Uh, the the big themes that I'm I'm looking at right now, one, vaccine timing, and and that's going to vary by by country, uh, but obviously that's going to have a huge impact when it when it comes at the end of the day. And I guess the question still kind of back to where we started was like, is the market going to look through any near term weakness and just look forward to that vaccine? And 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 that's really what's going to drive uh, markets generally. The second would be the mountain of money that's out there. Fiscal stimulus, household savings, you name it, those can and will have a big impact at some point. Again, that comes back to the vaccine, but it uh, reinforces that reflation trade that people like to talk about. And third, related to those two, is is just the reevaluation of monetary policy, maybe in the second half of next year. Uh, and that and that's definitely something to think about. And if you relate that back to Canada, some a, a, a trade that I know is being pushed heavily on the street is is just to be long the front end of Canada against the U.S. or or, or other countries and uh, the carry in the front end of Canada is much stronger than than elsewhere, uh, given given the, the slope there. I see the attraction. I see the carry attraction there. But if things are as positive as as they might be, uh, and and kind of I expect them to be, but uh, we'll we'll see on that front. Uh, I think that's probably a, a better short term trade. It, it's a risk hedge. If if things really do get worse over the next three three or four months or so, uh, that trade can perform nicely if the bank kind of cuts the ten beeps as we uh, as we mentioned. But I don't think you want to hold it for much longer than that if if that monetary policy reevaluation does eventually come. So those are those are the themes I'll probably be talking about over the next uh, week or so in my various uh, 2021 outlooks. I think we'll leave it there for the most part. But before we finish up, Fred, uh, what what is your top trade idea right now? Uh, either for December or if you want for 2021, you can really do anything you want. Carte Blanche, go ahead. It's hard to do anything with convection, I think, in December. You know, for 2021, though, I'd say... Uh, definitely along those same themes, like you know, the the I'd expect the belly of the curve to sell off a little bit here. Some you know, it, it's it's moved quite a bit already, but yeah, you know, I think there's still quite a bit left in that uh, still quite a bit left in that um, in that move. Um, so I like selling either either steepeners fives tens or selling tens on the curve, like a fives tens thirties trade. Those are sort of how I'd like to be positioned. All right, cool. Thank you very much, Fred. Uh, this will. Be the final episode of, of Views from the North for this year, uh, since I'm going on vacation and I will not be in in two weeks. Uh, so thank you to all our listeners out there. Very much appreciate your support. Happy holidays and, and happy new year. And we'll see you in 2021. Great. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to Views from the North, a Canadian rates and macro podcast. I hope you'll join me again for another episode. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. 
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise it constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.